I would imagine that I'm not terribly different from a lot of you in the room as it's Mother's Day weekend. Today's Mother's Day. We think about some of the things we learned from our moms. My mom introduced me to, to faith. My mom is the first person to teach me to, to memorize scripture. I'm incredibly grateful for so many things that my mom uh, gave to me. And my mom helped prepare me for a life of faith. My mom helped prepare me uh, for the adult world. And one of the gifts that my mom gave to me was not simply to see life and to, and to understand the gospel and to, and to approach that wealth. That's important. But part of the gift that my mom gave me was helping to see things from her perspective as well. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in which a mom interacted with Jesus, and we're not just going to look at this mom. It's also important to see from the perspective of a mom. Both men and women, not just people in general, but both men and women are made in the image of God. That means men and women, our job is to reflect. The way that we're designed is to reflect what God is like, and we are incomplete without both. And so today, as we look at this encounter between Jesus and a mom, and we're going to look at it from a mom's perspective, our ultimate goal is to see Jesus clearly. And to help us do that, I've invited uh, Svea Mary to come and share. I've got to hear this message. I think you're going to be encouraged by what you hear. So will you please join me in welcoming Pastor Svea Mary. Thank you for your kindness. I'd like to start by asking you a question. When you pray for your loved ones, what do you ask God to do for them? Do you ask that God would make sure that they have a happy life, that they are successful in everything that they set out to do? Maybe if they're sick, you ask God to restore them to health quickly. Maybe if they're starting something new, that it will be something that they feel proud of what they're about to accomplish and that they'll find great significance in that. Of course, all of these things are good things to pray for. But what I'd like to consider today is, is there something even better that we could intercede for our loved ones for when we go to God and tell him what it is that we would like him to do for our loved ones, indeed for ourselves? Today, in honor of Mother's Day, as Rick said, we're going to see a story about a mom who was a friend to Jesus. And we're going to look at this story not because she's the example of, of what a truly great mom is necessarily. We're not even really going to look at, at unique mothering skills in this story, but because her story is going to show all of us, whether we're a mother or not, something really valuable about how we go to God with the things that we want for ourselves and for our loved ones. Also, I don't know about the rest of you moms, but this story we're going to look at is, is a little bit of an awkward mom moment, and sometimes it's just reassuring to know that we're not the only mom that's had some not-so-glorious moments, so there's some encouragement for us in that as well because I've sure had my share of not-so-glorious moments. I didn't even get through my first night of motherhood before I surprised myself. Right after my, my first son was born, I was laying awake in the middle of the night, holding him and looking at this impossibly tiny body. And, and I vividly remember one of the first thoughts I had is, who is this little boy going to grow up to be? 
And many of us may have had that thoughts looking at a, a newborn baby, and maybe we wonder if they'll grow up to be a, a teacher or a doctor, maybe even a pastor, but not me. I, I don't know if it was the, the drugs of childbirth hadn't worn off yet, or maybe it was just that post-labor haze, but I'm looking at him, who is he going to grow up to be? And my brain reflexively filled in the answer. He would grow up to be a daddy rabbit. <laughs> Now, before you think I'm completely nuts, if you're my age or older, do you remember Little Golden Books? The, this one, the bunny book by Richard Scarry, was one of my very favorites as a little girl, and the whole book is about looking at this baby bunny and who he would grow up to be. Would he be a cowboy or a lion tamer? At the end of the book, it says that he would grow up to be a daddy rabbit. And so, for whatever reason, in holding my baby for the first time, all I could think of was this book that I hadn't thought of in years. But it jarred me enough, I, I recall this feeling, thinking, I don't want him to be a daddy rabbit. And I remember praying to God, you know, God, who will he be? You know, I want him to grow up to be happy. I want him to be healthy. I want him to know love. I want him to know God. And it, it started that off as the first night of many, many nights where I, I prayed for what I wanted for my children. And I think that's, that's a very good thing. But like I said, I, I think there's also some things that we could do a step beyond just telling God what it is that we want him to do for us for our children, for all of our loved ones. God does want us to talk to him and to tell him what we would like. But as you continue to consider this question, let me ask a couple of more. What if our plan for ourselves and our loved ones and God's plan is not necessarily the same thing? What if God wants something better for us than we've even thought to ask? Are we good with that? What if we're asking God for something, but what he gives us is not necessarily what we would ask for? How do we process that? I'm excited to show you this, this notable mom in the Bible. She's become rather dear to me as I've studied her story because she had this very specific request that she made of Jesus on behalf of her sons. It's a noble request, maybe a little bit audacious, but Jesus didn't respond to her the way that she probably hoped he did. This mother was mom to two young adult sons, James and John. James and John were two of Jesus' 12 disciples, and beyond that, they were also part of Jesus' inner core of three. Peter, James, and John were the closest of Jesus' disciples. Can you imagine the joy that must have been for this mom to know that your two sons are the closest friends of the long-awaited-for Messiah? You'd think she'd reached the top. What more could she possibly hope for them? These two boys, James and John, or young men at this time, had a fun nickname. They were sometimes known as the Sons of Thunder. And I wish the Bible told us how they got that nickname. It doesn't. I kind of wonder if maybe, maybe mom fed Jesus some stories that led to that. We'll have to ask her when we get to heaven where that came from. But these Sons of Thunder were right there at Jesus' side. But it's a little known, well, maybe not little known fact, many of you may know this, but not everyone realizes that it wasn't just the disciples that traveled with Jesus. There were several women and others that followed as well, women such as Mary Magdalene, and a few passages let us in on this little detail that James and John's mom 
was also one who traveled along with Jesus and the disciples who were there learning from him and absorbing all that he was teaching. And I would just think as they were walking from place to place and, and eating dinner and sitting around by the campfire that in the evenings, that they would continue to be processing all that Jesus was teaching. This mom, Mrs. Zebedee, as I kind of like to, to think of her, was likely putting together a number of the things that Jesus had been teaching. And when we get to the passage that we're going to look at today, I think it's her way of processing what she's been learning from Jesus, and she wants to take advantage of an opportunity. So as we see her here in Matthew chapter 20, this is her chance to snatch Jesus aside and let him know what she would like for her sons. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, mom's ambitious request for her sons on one level sounds kind of selfish, but it's not entirely out of left field. It's helpful to put this into a little bit more context. Remember, she's been traveling with Jesus. She's been hearing what he's been teaching. So if we turn back a page or two in the Bible and look at what came immediately before this, it will help us to interpret this with a little bit more precision and perspective. You see, at the end of the prior chapter, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus had answered a tough question from someone who was asking how to be saved. This man was a very wealthy man, and Jesus told him that he should go and sell all of his possessions, not because having possessions or wealth was bad, but because this man was making wealth his God, and it was going to be a stumbling block for him to be able to follow Jesus. And after that exchange, the disciples who had left everything behind to go and follow Jesus, were processing it a little bit further, and it led to Peter exclaiming, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, if you're the disciples hearing this, knowing that you're in this position, if you're the mom of two of these disciples who have left behind their homes and their careers to follow Jesus, this is definitely a lean in and listen to what comes next kind of moment. Jesus said, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Can you picture their smile at this point? Their mother's smile? She's probably thinking, this sounds great, Jesus. I am liking this plan. What a good investment my boys have made here. And then Jesus adds one more sentence. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, I don't know if James and John fully understood that sentence in this context. Maybe they thought they did. Maybe they thought this is further confirmation of their rags-to-riches future as common fishermen to ones who would be one day sitting on a throne. 
But right after this passage, maybe seeing some greed in their eyes, Jesus then launches into a parable in Matthew chapter 20, a parable, a story that he had to tell about a landowner who hired workers to come and work for him throughout the day. Some began working at the beginning of the day, some didn't come until the end of the day, but at the end of the day, all of the workers got paid the same wage. And Jesus finished the story addressing those who seemed ready to pounce with with saying, that doesn't seem fair. Again, repeating that cryptic statement from before, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Then, in the next section, as they're walking to Jerusalem, Jesus took the disciples aside, and he warned them that when they arrived, Jesus would be betrayed, and that they will condemn him to death, and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'd be raised to life. So all of these things are what's probably swirling around in Mrs. Zebedee's head, in James and John's head, as they're thinking about what Jesus has taught about thrones and about inheritance and about following him and about last and first. And now it sounds like the big events of this coming kingdom are about to happen as they enter Jerusalem. And I think all of that is why we see her here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, pulling Jesus aside and kneeling before him to tell him the greatness that she wants secured now for her sons while she has the chance. Now, there's a lot of things that I appreciate about this mother's request. On the positive side, she's been paying attention to what Jesus has been teaching. She clearly has been absorbing his messages. And this request demonstrates an admirable level of belief and faith in what Jesus has been saying. She's grasping for greatness for her own sons, but at least the greatness that she wants for them is something that is noble. Mom did pretty well here. But on the negative side, Jesus had just taught not once, but twice, the importance of having a stance of humility. And so it's a little awkward, at best, that mom's first instinct of what she's asking for her sons is to make them number one and number two. You know what else is awkward about this exchange? It's about to become very clear that James and John are very much part of this. This isn't mom going rogue and just uh, getting a little bit over eager here. James and John are standing there right with her. And it's not like they're little boys hiding in the folds of mom's skirt. These are young men who have been traveling with Jesus for a couple of years. They, they should have been able to talk to him on their own. And in, in, indeed, they may have been even more active in this in Mark's account of the same story, he leaves poor mom out of it and just puts all of the blame square on James and John. Rounding out the awkwardness of this request is what happened when all of the other disciples got wind of what had just happened here. Verse 24 says that when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, I can't say for certain, you can think through this one yourself. Do you think that they were indignant because of the arrogance of this request? Or do you think it's more likely that they were indignant because they got to Jesus first and they also wanted the right and left hand seat? 
I think the way that Jesus responds to them in verses 25 through 28 gives us an indication that it's probably more the latter. Jesus called them together and he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is clearly tipping upside down the picture of greatness here. Greatness is found by seeking to be a servant, not seeking a throne. Greatness is not realized by ruling at Jesus' side. Greatness is realized by serving the way that he did. How are we all doing with this? I mean, maybe you're thinking, it's fine, I'm not really into thrones, it doesn't fit my decor anyway, so that's, that's not a problem. And, and in fact, and, and maybe the moms out there, we, we are prone to this trap, it's easy to see our lives as being all about serving the needs of other people all the time anyway, so you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm good, that's, that's what my life's all about. But let me ask you this. What's your motivation for why you're serving other people? Are you serving because it's your role, your responsibility, it's just what you have to do? Or are you serving other people because you genuinely want to emulate our Lord Jesus and live life the way that he did? May I introduce you to 20-year-old Svea? This young gal with the awkwardly fitting uniform not designed for 20-year-old women, was still quite confident at this age that she was on a straight-line path to the airlines. I, I remember telling my mom at about this, this very age, maybe within a few weeks of this picture being taken, that I had it all figured out how I was going to get the flying experience and the educational experience I needed to be one of the youngest women pilots for Northwest Airlines. And I still, I can picture where I was sitting as we had this conversation because it jarred me that she didn't respond with, you know, way to go, hun, go get them. She said, actually, Svea, be careful. You can't control all of the factors you think you can. Life doesn't always turn out the way that we plan for. Just, you know, build that into your thinking a little bit. And, and at the time, I, I didn't understand what she was saying. I just figured, all you need is just determination drive. You'll, you'll make your own story happen. But with a little bit more perspective, I began to see the wisdom in what she was trying to prepare me for. And as it turned out, I never did make it to the airlines. Everything changed when I got married, and my future daddy rabbit was born. And then the life that unfolded for me was one of loss and widowhood and then remarriage and adoption, and ultimately surrendering my airline dream for agreeing to serve God in whatever way that he asked of me. And people often ask me if I miss flying, and the immediate answer is yes, I love that chapter of my life, but I wouldn't try to go back to my original plan because I've discovered a far sweeter joy in wanting to serve God in whatever way that he has asked of me rather than what my original plan for my life had been. And I do wonder, though, if Jesus had been present at that conversation I had with my mom, if he would have, have gently sided with her and said, Svea, you can't always plan for things to go exactly the way that you think it would. I don't know what he'd say, but I'm sure he'd say it with gentleness and love and encouragement to trust him and encouragement that his plan was ultimately better even if I might not have thought so at the time, 
But we don't have to wonder how Jesus responded to James and John and their mom, even though as they had laid out their plan, his response was probably not what they wanted to hear either. Right after mom tells Jesus her plans for her sons to be on thrones at Jesus' right and left, here's his response. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, I don't know if James and John knew what he meant by that, but with great eagerness of the young men that they were, they immediately respond, we can. (laughs) It's an odd thing, Jesus said, though, right? What does drinking the cup mean? Throughout the Old Testament, the cup is sometimes used as a metaphor for suffering, and given that Jesus has just explained that he's about to be arrested and beaten and crucified. That's likely what he is meaning here. And with all of that in mind, it's a bit crazy how eager James and John were to say that, yeah, we can do that. But, but I wonder if, again, with that eagerness, if that, that drive that they had there, if they're thinking that maybe drinking this cup, whatever it might be, is their way of passing the test to prove their fitness to be at Jesus's right and left in his coming kingdom, And yet, even thinking about that, I just wonder what mom was doing at this moment. Poor mom, you know, James and John are all eager, but mom might be thinking, wait, no, Jesus, that's exactly the opposite of what I'm asking of you. I have a great plan for my sons. I'm asking for something that seems clearly good, and you're telling me that they're about to drink a cup of suffering? And can you relate to that? Have you had that experience where you feel like you're asking God for something that is clearly a good thing and what you're getting in return does not feel good? Now, I do want to be clear about something. Jesus is not saying that suffering is the price that we have to pay to achieve greatness. It's not that whoever drinks the biggest cup of suffering gets the prize in the end of getting to sit on his right and left. Indeed, in verse 23, Jesus goes on to explain that to sit at his right or left is not for him to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared for by my Father. But suffering does seem to play a role for many of us in helping us to mature, to grow into people who are more like Jesus. It's an essential part of our spiritual formation. It's what allows us to have the experiences to guide and care for other people who are going through similar situations. Suffering may be the best training we can receive to learn how to be truly great servants for the kingdom, people who are ready to give grace, to show compassion, to extend empathy to others who need that. Parents often instinctively know that pain accompanies growth. We know it's inevitable when we take the training wheels off our little kiddo's bike, or when we tell them, no, I'm sorry, you can't go outside to play, you need to finish your homework, or when we drop off our nervous freshman at his college dorm, that there will be scrapes and struggles along the way, but it's what they need. We know that we have purpose in that for them, and yet, as good parents, we'll be there to care them through it. So if we can recognize that 
How much more can we trust that God, who's a better parent than any of us ever could be, when he lets us drink that bitter cup, that he too has purpose in it for us, and that he too will be there to care for us through that. Before we go to Jesus with our requests and tell him what he should do for us, like Mrs. Zebedee did, an even better thing to pray for ourselves and the ones that we love may be for greater trust for Jesus, greater eyes to be able to see what it is that he is trying to accomplish in our lives, that what it is that he is doing to bring to completion the good work that he has already begun in us. Imagine the greatness that we could have if we surrendered our preferences to God and embraced life as a continual opportunity to become more like Christ. Imagine what it would do in our families, in our church, in our community, if we embraced the truths in this passage that suffering and servanthood are opportunities to become more like Jesus and to emulate him in the way that he loved God and neighbor. Though it can be scary to trust God's plan over our own, can I offer some massive benefits for all of us in doing this? Consider three of the biggest internal struggles that so many of us have. Those gnawing feelings of inadequacy, or maybe regret over the things that we either did or did not do. And how about fear? Especially fear of what the future could bring. I wonder if James and John's mom's request was maybe motivated by some or, or all of these fears. I wonder if she was trying to secure greatness for her sons because she was afraid of what Jesus had said was coming, so she wanted to lock that down. Or, or maybe she wanted them to have these highest positions of, of power because she didn't want them to wrestle with feeling inadequate compared to the other disciples. Or maybe she just simply felt that she would regret it if she didn't take the chance when she thought she had it. Do you relate to any or, or maybe all of these struggles? As I've been thinking about this, do you know what all three of these have in common? All three of these center on the illusion that we are in control. They all tempt us to slip into this burden of thinking that everything rests on our shoulders. And if we let that happen, we'll easily become overwhelmed by it. It's a pretty direct path to feeling anxious or even depressed. Instead, if we release ourselves of the illusion of control and adopt an attitude of surrender to the goodness of God and the story that he is writing, we can free ourselves from these struggles. We no longer have to feel inadequate because God is enough. We no longer have to live with regrets because God can accomplish his good purposes with or without our help, regardless of what it is that we do or don't do. And we don't have to fear what the future will bring because we can trust that our loving God will provide whatever it is that we need to get through it and to grow from it. 
while I was working on this message, God gave me a chance to apply it to myself. My college-age daughter called us in distress a couple weeks ago. She was driving back to college in Kentucky from a quick road trip to Chicago, and her car broke down in Gary, Indiana. And fortunately, there was a car repair place very close to where they broke down, and they were able to get the car over there in a couple hours, and a few hundred dollars later, they were back on the road. But then two hours after that, the repair failed, and they broke down again. They left the car at a gas station and, and got to a hotel for the night, and she called me, and it just it was heartbreaking to hear the distress in her voice. I felt so helpless, and my mind was spinning with all of the bad things that could have happened or still could yet happen, and, and uh, I started praying, you know, God, you've got you've to get them through this, and you've got to keep them safe, and telling God all of these things that I needed him to do, and, and I just kept hearing God say, Trust me. Trust me. And as I surrendered to trusting, I began to pray instead, okay, God, I'll trust you. Just use this to show yourself to her. Help her to trust you. Help her to see your hand in this situation. So it was especially sweet the next day when they got the car fixed a second time and they finally did make it back to college to talk with her, and I, I asked her if she could reflect on the experience a little bit and see if, if she did feel God with her. And she sent me a text and said I could share it with you. She said, we were fortunate it wasn't worse than it was, and thankfully it wasn't something we found out through a crash or an accident of some sort. The Lord was kind and keeping us safe, for sure. I found myself fearful last night, worrying that my car would be broken into or something would go wrong where we left it, so I had to keep repeating to myself that God was sovereign over the situation. Dad was good to remind me of that over the phone. And if anything did bad occur, God would work in it and through it. Thank you for asking. It's good to reflect on. Now, in a million years, would I ever pray that God would have my kid's car break down just so that they could have an experience to grow from? Never. Of course, I'm going to continue to pray that he's going to keep them safe. But when the story doesn't go the way that I would choose for it to go, will I continue to pray that God would use that to help them grow, to learn something from it, that, that they might see a little bit more of his hand on their life? Absolutely. And though this story ended nicely, if it hadn't gone as well as it did, would that change anything about how God is still good and sovereign over the situation? Not even a little bit. And if anything bad did occur, would I still continue to ask God to work in and through it? Absolutely. Of course, like James and John's mom, it is easier to ask God for the things that we consider great. But think about this. After all is said and done, would you rather have what you consider great or what God considers great? If we could have lunch with James and John's mom and ask her about this request gone sideways with Jesus, what do you think she'd tell us? Do you think she felt rejected by Jesus? Or maybe that the awkwardness of this damaged her devotion to him? Unfortunately, there isn't anything more said in Matthew chapter 20 about her, but she does appear later in the Gospels. Do you know where that is? 
because where we see her next, I think, answers all of the questions we might have about her devotion to Jesus. Where we see her next mentioned is at the cross, at the point where Peter had denied even knowing Jesus, and other disciples had left and fled for their lives. This mom, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, was still there for Jesus. Matthew, another one of the disciples who would have known her, records the, the scene at the crucifixion. He records this. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. With a little logical deduction from the Gospel of Mark, we can add another pleasant detail about this woman. We find out her first name. This mother's name was Salome, a name that's a Hebrew word for peace. But peace was probably not what Salome felt as she was staring at that gruesome scene of the three crosses. And as she stood there and she saw her Jesus in the middle, did she look at the men on his right and on his left and suddenly remember what she had asked for her sons? Was the full implication of all that Jesus had taught beginning to sink in. As she stared at that scene, did she see her own son, John, who was still there at Jesus' feet? And did she hear it when Jesus spoke down to John and asked her, John, to be the one to take care of his own mother, Mary? And I just wonder if, if she heard that and, and felt that incredible honor shown to her son, and I wonder how that made her feel. Was the honor that Jesus showed to her son an honor that was even better than what she would have requested? As John continued for the rest of his life to record the message of the gospel and to continue to share that, would he have traded that future for anything else? Salome shows up one more place after the cross, she shows up again on Easter morning. She was one of the women who was there at the tomb, met by the angel to find out that Jesus was not there, that he had risen. Salome was one of the ones told to go and share this incredibly good news with the other disciples. How amazing would it have been for this mom to be there at one of the greatest events in all of human history, at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, knowing all that she knew, would Salome have wanted anything other than what Jesus gave her? I think the rhetorical answer to this is no, but on an honest level, it is scary to fully accept that. And I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone else because I still struggle to trust an unknown future to God. Knowing that it will ultimately be good doesn't mean that it will be easy. 
But here's the thing. God has a better vantage point on our lives, a better perspective on what is truly great than any of us do. We can trust that he loves us and our loved ones with a greater love, with a purer love than any of us are capable of. We can trust that what he writes into our story is something that he will use for our spiritual formation to help us grow into fully devoted followers of Jesus and to give us a heart that can love and live as he did. Pastor and author Tim Keller has said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. I think that is one of the most profound things that Keller's ever said. It's a game-changing approach to life if we really let that sink in and take hold of our hearts. James and John's mom sought what she thought would make her sons great, but Jesus redirected her understanding of greatness, not as the people who would hold the highest positions of power, but in becoming more like him, taking the position of a servant, to become a person who loves God and loves others above all else. These are the people who are truly great. I'm going to land this plane by bringing back a question I asked a few minutes ago for you to consider. Would you rather have what you consider great or what God considers great? And I challenge you to reflect on that today. If we truly embrace the principles of this passage, the willingness to become great in the way that God sees greatness, how much more could we be for our families, for our church, for our community, if we received all that God brings into our life as an opportunity to make us more like Christ, to equip us and to motivate us to live and to love as he did. What God gives us or our loved ones might not be what we ask for, but it might be a whole lot better. <laughs>